Please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. I'm curious, uh, any of you love change? Any really spontaneous people just love things kind of getting mixed up? Any, any great change-oriented people? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, well, a few. I won't ask if there are others who don't like change because you wouldn't raise your hands anyway, right? It's only a spontaneous people. Yes, come on, stir things up. We like it when it's different, right? Well, fact of the matter is um, all of us prefer change that we initiate and we control, right? That's the kind of change that we're actually okay with. I remember uh, one time early in our marriage, came home and I um, opened the door and said, hey, Tris, surprise, guess who's joining us for dinner? <laughs> that was not a change that she embraced, Right? And so I learned early on, there are other kinds of changes that my wife can embrace, you know, like when I just walk in the door and I have flowers, or when I call at three in the afternoon, I say, baby, you're so beautiful and wonderful. I know you've been working hard all day. Don't cook. Let me take you out to a fancy dinner, right? That's change she can embrace. That's the kind of change she likes. But for all of us, whether we love change or really don't like change, fact is, in each of our lives, there are things that are just so deeply embedded in us that they're difficult to change. Beliefs or commitments or habits that are just entrenched and sometimes they actually feel not difficult but impossible to change. As we study the book of Acts, what we're going to see is miracle after miracle after miracle. We're going to see people raised from the dead, see people healed, gifts of tongues poured out. But the greatest miracles that occur in the book of Acts, the greatest miracles that occur in human history are when people are changed, deeply and permanently changed. What you see in the book of Acts and what we see in our own lives is that the only person who can make that kind of change is the Spirit of God. And so this morning as we start, I want you to take a moment and just bow your head silently before the Lord and say, God, change me. God, make me willing to change. Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord before we engage in his word and ask God to change us. Father, the kind of change that we need only you can make. So we pray that we would be men and women who welcome that work of your spirit. We do not dig in our heels or become resistant to what you want to do. Instead, Father, even today, through the power of your word, the power of your spirit, pray that you change us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, if you are not already there, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 36. This is the end of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he sums it up like this. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of all the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now, if I can summarize, Peter says this, You killed Jesus. And the audience says, Uh oh. That can't be good. I guess really bad things are going to happen to us. What are those bad things, Peter, and how can we avoid those bad things? And at this point in time, we would expect Peter to say, believe. As Paul does later in Acts chapter 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that's not what Peter says. Read with me verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And as many as the Lord God 
shall call to himself. Peter doesn't say, believe. He says, repent and be baptized. And you will receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. So is Peter just messed up theologically? What happened to salvation by grace through faith? Faith alone in Christ alone. Why didn't Peter just say believe? And why did Peter say repent? So what we're going to begin today is on the word repentance. What does it mean? What was Peter talking about? What's the meaning of repentance? And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to give you uh, several common definitions in popular Christian literature today. And I'm going to give you some quotes from writers that uh, most of you would know. I'm not going to put the name of the author up there because I'm not interested in distracting you or providing a critique for a particular author. That's not what I'm worried about. I would challenge you to begin to read current Christian literature with a more critical eye. Pay attention to what you see because the quotes that you're going to see today are probably books that you've already read and maybe you didn't pick up on some of these inconsistencies theologically. So, Common definitions of what it means to repent. Stop sinning. This is probably the most common. So what Peter is saying is stop sinning. Saying to these Jews, you need to clean up your act. First quote from a very popular book on spiritual life. The author said, what must we do to be saved? Kind of quoting from Acts chapter 2. Turn from sin and trust the Savior. Okay. And then he goes on to elaborate. What does he mean by that? Well, we must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. Wow. That's quite a list. And you know what he says in the sentence right before that is, these are just a few of the things that we need to do to receive the free gift of eternal life. (laughs) Wow. That's a lot. I better get busy. All right. Second quote for you. It's from a commentary on the book of Acts, again by a very popular author. He said, what the gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Christ. And then from a systematic theology, which, well, actually, maybe none of you read, but I've read it. So, (laughs) quoting, it says, Christian conversion thus is a turning from an evil lifestyle unto the Lord in total submission and obedience. To which I say, you know, I would argue even today, I don't even, I'm not even aware of all of my sins. Let alone do I have the power to turn from them. So another popular definition is this, turn or stop the sins that you are aware of, right? You can't stop all sins, but at least stop the ones that you're aware of. But how do you do that apart from first being indwelt and empowered by the spirit of God? How do you stop any sin apart from the spirit of God? And so a third definition that frequently shows up is this, resolve to stop sinning, right? You don't even know all the sins that you, that you commit and that, you're, you're, that are embedded in your life, but the ones that you are aware of at least resolve to stop those, right? Make a commitment, in which case eternal life is not something we receive from God, but a commitment or promise we make to God. Now I guarantee you, Peter would not have said to this audience, resolve to stop sinning. Because Peter had made resolutions that had failed, right? Jesus, I will by no means deny you. I will stick with you even to the point of death, even if everybody else denies you. What happened? Fail, fail, fail. Peter is not saying stop sinning or even stop the sins that you're aware of 
or even resolve or commit to stop sinning. So what does it mean to repent? What does Peter mean when he says, repent and be baptized? Remember this. Words have meaning in context. Right? The context in which they're written or the context in which they're spoken. That's what gives words meaning. The, the framework around them. Uh, this last week, my son uh, turned in a project. It was a group project, and they were doing uh, a study of utopia, the concept of utopia. And they had to create a visual aid of their concept of utopia. So his group made a Lego city of utopia, and it was really cool. It was a really cool Lego city. They brought it in. They made the presentation. I saw him after school that evening. I said, man, how did, how did your presentation on utopia go? Did everybody like your, your visual aid, the Lego city? And he goes, dad, we wrecked it. I go, oh, but I'm, I'm so sorry you wrecked it. I mean, I thought it was a really cool Lego city that you made. I'm, I'm sorry, did you get a poor grade? He goes, Dad, come on, we wrecked it. That is, we, we killed it. It was awesome. It was such a cool project. I, I just love messing with my kids. <laughs> right, you wrecked it. What does that mean? In context. It's awesome. Okay? Same is true for biblical words. What do they mean in context? So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the context of New Testament Greek, okay, which is the context in which Peter is speaking. The word that he uses here is metanoia. It's a Greek word that's a compound word. It's from a verb that means to think or perceive, and a prefix that means after. So, in a sense, what repentance is, is to think something, and then afterwards to think something else. Okay? To think afterwards, or in other words, to change your mind. It is a change. It is a turning. It is thinking one thing and then thinking another thing. Let me illustrate for you from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, even afterwards, when he, that is Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. What's going on here? Well, Esau uh, has gone into his father Isaac and he wants a blessing from Isaac. But Isaac's just been deceived and he's given the blessing away to Jacob. And so Esau comes in afterwards. He's a little late to the game and he says, Father, give me a blessing. Well, I already gave it to Jacob. Well, give me one as well. And Isaac says, sorry, I only had one and I gave it away. And Esau in tears and great remorse is trying to do what? He's trying to change Isaac's mind. The repentance here is Isaac. He's trying to say, Dad, can I convince you to change your mind and give away another blessing. Okay? It's, it's a reorientation. And it's not just intellectual. It's a, it's a change or a movement in the inner man, the inner disposition of a person. Let me illustrate from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes to Timothy, With gentleness, Timothy, correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of, de- of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What is re- repentance? In a sense, Paul says, it is coming to your senses. Right? It, it's, oh man, I was not thinking rightly about that, and now I understand, and I think correctly. I come to my senses. Now, I'm guessing that we have some folks who uh, came in for the game from out of town, and you decided, man, I just loved Grace so much. When I was a student here, I'm going to stay and I'm going I'm to worship, but I can't get up too early. I'll make it to the 11, then I'll drive home. And I'm guessing as well that some of you uh, got nostalgic when driving to town. You think, gosh, I loved my time at A&M. What would be a great way pre-game? What, 
well, we got to eat. Let's go eat. Let's go to Lane's, right? You come in town and you got to go to Lane's. You got to get some of that great sauce, right? That, man, that's amazing. And so you drove up to park at Lane's and it was really hard to find a place to park. And you're looking at the line and the line's going way out the door and you made a fatal error in judgment. You said, it's just going to take too long. I'll go to Cane's, right? (laughs) Right? You said, in your mind, you said, Cane's is a worthy substitute for Lane's. And what you need to do this morning is you need to repent, right? (laughs) You need to change your mind. No, no, Cane's is not a worthy substitute for Lane's. You need to change your orientation. Right this morning, you can repent. You can change the inner disposition and admit you were wrong. Confess your sin, repent, turn, change. And then the next time you're driving up, no matter how long the line is, you will stay loyal to Lane's, right? Now that change of behavior is not repentance. The change of orientation in the inner man is the repentance that leads to a change of behavior afterwards. So, as Louis Burkhoff said in his systematic theology, according to scripture, repentance is wholly an inward act and it should not be confounded with the change of life that proceeds from it. Confession of sin and reparation of wrongs are fruits of repentance. But repentance itself is that change in the inner man. So, we have to ask ourselves, when we approach this topic, change your mind about what? Okay, repent from what? Remember, words have meaning in context. So, for example, as you're reading your Bible and you hit the word salvation, you always have to ask yourself the question, salvation from what? In fact, if you're in the Old Testament... Most frequently, it's not salvation from the penalty of sin. It is salvation from a physical threat. Salvation from what? You hear, see the word repentance, you need to ask the same question. Repentance from what? Who is being called to repent and what are they being called to repent from? So let me give you a few of the definitions of repentance in context. First, repent from disbelief or from rejection of Jesus. Turn to Acts chapter 5. And verse 30. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Peter preaching again, he says this. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What was the issue for this early audience, this first audience of of Jews in Jerusalem, day of Pentecost and the few days after, what's the issue? The issue is this. They have rejected Jesus. They have said, no, he is not God's Messiah. He's a criminal who deserves his punishment. And so Peter calls on them to repent because they need to turn away in their, their, their thinking and their mindset, their inner commitment to rejection of Jesus toward an acceptance of Jesus. In other words, they need to believe. F.F. F. Bruce wrote his commentary on Acts. He said this, all that they had to do to avail themselves of this salvation was to change their former attitude to Jesus and to bring it into line with God's attitude. That's what repentance is. Stop disbelieving. Stop rejecting. Instead, turn toward Jesus and accept him. So, to put that in a broader theological 
construct. What keeps a person out of heaven? Or, conversely, what sends a person to hell? Is it personal sins? Okay, the sins that we commit? The answer is no, it's not. There's just one, pers- one sin that keeps a person out of heaven, and that's the sin of disbelief. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him, that is, Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What keeps a person separated from God is just one sin. It's the sin of disbelief. It's the sin of rejection of Jesus. It's saying no to Jesus. That's what separates a person. So repent from disbelief or repent from rejection of Jesus. As Tom Constable wrote, Whenever a person believes in Christ, he repents. That is, he changes his mind about who Christ is and what Christ has done. In other words, repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin, right? To repent is to turn away from rejection of Jesus and toward acceptance of Jesus. Second issue that this early audience was dealing with was self-righteousness. These were devout Jews, meaning these are Jews who obeyed the law. They weren't pagans. They weren't idolatrous. They weren't a highly immoral people. These were law-abiding Jewish people. They were also people who were incredibly self-righteous. In their mind, in a sense, they really didn't need God because they were obedient to God. The book of Hebrews addresses this topic. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Messiah, that is the Christ, Let us press on to maturity, not going back and laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. See, there it is. Flip sides of the same coin. Let's not go back and relay that foundation, the initial understanding of the gospel, which is saying no to what I can accomplish and saying yes to what Jesus has accomplished, right? Saying no to my own works, which I thought would give me life and make me worthy to be accepted by God. And now instead I recognize, no, those are dead works. They can't bring me life. Instead, I understand I can only get life through Jesus Christ. So I turn away from dead works and toward the living work of Jesus Christ. Third, we'll see this later in the book of Acts, repent from trust in false gods. This applies not so much to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Turn to Acts chapter 17. In verse 29, what was the repentance that these pagan, idolatrous Gentiles needed to make? I needed to stop trusting in false gods and turn to the one true living God. Verse 29, this is Paul preaching in Athens. He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That is, they should change their mind, turn away from the false gods and turn toward the true God because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead." says, you idolatrous Athenians, you've got gods everywhere here, throughout the city. There's even a statue to an unknown God because you're afraid you might miss one. And you think all of these gods can give you life. And Paul says, there is no God but one. 
And you need to change your mind about what these false gods can provide and turn toward the one true God. Because you're accountable to him. And he proved that by raising his son, Jesus, from the dead. So, Paul summarizes, I think states it very clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For they themselves report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God away from the idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Turn away from this, and turn toward this. Repent from this, change your mind, your, the, the inner disposition of your man, from rejection of the truth toward reception of the truth. So, practically speaking then, should we talk about repentance when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ? Should we insist that we bring up that word? Well, I want you to think for just a moment. There are four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those gospels is explicitly evangelistic. You know which one it is? Gospel of... John, that's right. Okay, John's is the explicitly evangelistic gospel. He says, these things I've written to you so that you may believe. Jesus is the Christ, son of God. That's why I wrote this gospel, evangelistic. How many times does John mention the word repentance in his gospel? Just give me a guess. Five, 10, 15, uh, zero. Okay, the one evangelistic gospel, he uses the word repentance no time, zero. Uh, Galatians is Paul's first work on justification by faith. You know how many times he uses the word repentance? Quiz is getting easier. You can probably guess, right? (laughs) Zero. He doesn't mention it. Why not? Because the concept of faith, in a sense, subsumes repentance. Right? Why would I say I need a savior if I don't have anything to be saved from? It is that conviction of the error of my understanding and thinking that drives me to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what you see in presentation after presentation after presentation of the gospel throughout the New Testament is what's emphasized is always faith. So later in Acts chapter 16, Philippian jailer will ask Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Their response, just this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. You and your household, what do you need to do? You need to believe. How are you saved? By grace through faith. Who saves you? God. God alone saves you. Because God alone has the strength to save you. And how do you receive that salvation? By his gracious disposition toward you. You reach out in faith and receive a free gift. That is how you are saved. So, John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That is, those who believe in his name. First John chapter five, verse one, or chapter five, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the only begotten son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life because you've believed. Or Acts four, five, to the one who does not work, but believes. His faith, his faith alone is credited as righteousness. Just believe. Right? Men and women, just believe. So can I use the word repentance? Well, sure, as long as I understand that it doesn't mean clean up your act. Okay, stop sinning or, or commit to stop sinning and then you'll be acceptable to God. Then God will give you the free gift after you do something. No, no, that's a contradiction. The gospel is absolutely and utterly free. And men and women, in our presentation of the gospel, it needs to sound too good to be true. That the one thing that is most valuable in the universe actually is free. 
God says, just reach out and take it. Believe. Believe me. And and when that occurs, that is the greatest miracle that happens in human experience. For those of you who have uh, friends or relatives that have not believed and you have prayed and prayed and prayed for years and you have shared your faith over and over and over again. You know what I'm talking about. It feels like, man, we're just up against a stone wall. There's just this resistance to change. An unwillingness to, to listen to God, digging in the heels. And for those of you who have seen that miracle occur, you know it's, it's amazing. It, it's, it's nothing that we can produce. It's just the Spirit of God somehow finally breaking through to that heart and they turn away from self-righteousness, away from rejection, and toward faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the most beautiful thing that occurs. It is an absolute miracle. It's change. Profound change. It's permanent change. What causes that change? Hey, what, what draws it out? What is, in other words, the motivation for repentance? I will admit to you that there are um, some things, some would, um, my friends would argue many things even, that I, I, I can be kind of stubborn. I can kind of dig in my heels. There, 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 yeah, there's a lot of change. I like change, but I do like change that I initiate. There are other changes that I, I'm, I'm pretty resistant on. I actually had a, one of my friends, a coworker here, say to me last year, he said, Brian, um, He said, I believe that if you became convinced that preaching in a clown outfit would actually further the gospel of Jesus Christ, said, I think if you became convinced that that was true, then every week we would see you showing up and preaching in in a clown outfit. But you'd have to be convinced, and I got to tell you, you're hard to convince, Brian. (laughs) Hard to convince. You know what? That's the flesh. And every single one of us has that. A resistance to change. So what is it that draws out that change? Two things that the Bible talks about. First is the kindness of God. Romans 2 verse 4, Paul wrote, Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's favorite tool to move the human heart is to shower us with his unconditional love and kindness. Through Jesus Christ. That is God's preferred method. It is kindness. When I want my children to change, you know how I want them to change? I want them to change through kindness. It's an interesting story, remember, in the gospel where the woman comes and she anoints Jesus' feet and she cries and she wipes tears off with her hair, his feet, and Jesus makes this comment. She says, she loves much because she was forgiven much. She was overwhelmed with the kindness of God and she, she reacted out of gratitude toward God. You know, that's with my kids, that's what I want. I want them to react out of gratitude for my kindness and my generosity because I'm a benevolent dictator in my home showering the family with goodness. That's what I want them to feel. But you know what? That's not always what happens. Sometimes I'm, I'm having to say no and no and discipline and the discipline's ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And I confess once this happened, I exploded. Once I actually lost it and, ah, you know, and in that moment, you know what happens? My kids kind of get the point and they begin to backpedal a little bit and they realize, oh no, consequences are coming and perhaps we should change. What bad things are going to happen and how can we avoid those bad things? Hey, that is the second 
motivation that we see in Scripture. It's called fear. It's called fear. God has created the universe. And in his universe, he has woven it together like fabric that reflects his personality. There is kindness, and there is goodness, and there is grace, and there is justice and righteousness. And in God's universe, there is woven into this experience that we have consequences for behavior. There's cause and effect. The inevitable law of inevitable consequences. You do certain things and other things occur. It's true in the physical world. It's true in the moral world. It's one of the reasons I let my kids watch America's Funniest Home Videos as we're watching those and you know, we're all laughing and I say, you know, this is great. Laugh at the person on the video. Don't be the person on the video, right? Because if you jump off the roof onto a trampoline, bad things happen every time. Don't. Just learn, right? Cause, effect. It's true in the physical world. It's true in the moral world. Adam and Eve died not because the fruit was rotten or poisonous. Right? In fact, we're told Eve looked at it and it was actually beautiful fruit. It probably tasted incredibly sweet in the first few seconds But she and Adam died because God said no. It wasn't because the fruit was bad physically. It's because the fruit was bad morally. God said no, and they said yes, and there was a consequence. This is what the whole book of Proverbs is about. Can a man take fire into his chest and his clothes not be burned? No. Rhetorical question, no. may not be immediate, but inevitably there are consequences. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to them and they come under conviction of the consequences of their rejection of Jesus. Turn back to chapter 2 with me in verse 36. Acts 2 verse 36. Therefore, therefore, here's the conclusion of the matter. Let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let all the house of Israel know that you are responsible for the rejection of Jesus. And in fact, that's going to be an element in all of Peter's early sermons. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. When Pilate offered to release one man, you said, give us the insurrectionist, give us the murderer, give us Barabbas. We choose Barabbas. We reject Jesus. And his audience says, that can't be good. That can't be good. Remember, they are living under an Old Testament mindset. And the law says this, if you obey, you will be blessed. Your crops are going to come forth. Your animals will breed well. Your families will multiply. You'll be protected from all of your enemies. The rains will come on the right season. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed, by which he means you will experience the inevitable and natural consequences for your sins. Your animals won't breed. Your crops won't come up. The rains won't come up on the right time. In fact, your enemies are going to come and harass you and attack you. And if you continue in your rebellion against me, I'm going to take you off of the land. In fact, that's what Israel had experienced. 722 BC, the northern 10 tribes were taken away. 586, Babylonians took the southern two tribes away. They were exiled. They were taken off of the land. And now they recognize 
We have committed the sin of all sins. God sent his appointed Messiah for us and we killed him. That can't be good. In fact, Jesus had predicted the judgment would come upon that generation of the nation. He predicted that they would reject him by crucifixion. He predicted that they would hang him on a tree, symbolizing that they pronounced a curse on him. And as a result of them pronouncing a curse on him, God would pronounce a curse on them. And that armies would come in and they would destroy Jerusalem. And they would knock down the temple and they would overturn every stone. All of that happened in AD 70 when Titus came in with the Roman army and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and the people scattered. And so Peter preaches here, chapter 2, verse 40. It says, with many other words, he solemnly testified to death, burial, and, re- burial, and resurrection of Messiah. And he kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved, be rescued out of this crooked and perverse generation. Be saved. Be afraid. Be afraid. Because there are consequences of sin. And instead of rejecting Messiah, you should believe in him. A couple of years ago, I had uh, an international student was sitting in my office and he was asking me about Jesus who Jesus was, what I believed about Jesus, asking me about Christianity. And I was walking him through the gospel and I was trying to tear down the the barriers to his faith. He's from a Muslim background. And he didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. It was heresy for him, the way he was raised, to say Jesus is the son of God. And I began arguing, no, Jesus is the son of God. God. Jesus is God in human flesh. That is who Jesus is. And man, I was really... I was hammering and I had some good arguments lined up and I was about halfway through my arguments, really just getting to the good stuff, at which point in time he just said, stop. What do I need to do? (laughs) What had happened to him during that conversation is before I really made my best points, God's spirit had come in and had changed his mind about Jesus. And in that moment in time, I could have said to him, repent, repent, But honestly, he had already repented, right? He had already changed his mind about who he thought Jesus was, and he had turned to believe. And I really, I could have said believe. In fact, I did say believe, but actually he had already believed, right? He had turned away from rejection of Jesus as the son of God toward faith in Jesus as the son of God. He believed and he was saved. Okay, his whole life, it was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle. And as I thought about it and reflected on that event, I I had to acknowledge it wasn't the strength of my arguments. It was the power of the Spirit of God moving him and moving in his life and moving him out of this entire background and mindset that he had, out of that and rejection of Jesus toward faith in Jesus. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle. He believed. So Peter says to these people, you are responsible. You're responsible. And in the narrative, Luke tells us they were cut to the heart. They were, they were pierced. They came under deep conviction of sin that they were responsible for the rejection of Jesus. What should we do? Peter says, change your orientation. Jesus is not a criminal who deserved to die. He's God's Messiah sent for you. Repent. 
And what is the natural expression of the fact that you have changed your entire orientation toward Jesus? You have publicly rejected him. Now, publicly identify with Jesus. That is the natural, normal, and for them culturally relevant expression of the fact that now they wanted to be a part of Jesus and who Jesus was in Jesus' kingdom. That's what baptism is about, men and women. That's what baptism is about. Baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of an inner spiritual reality. It's a physical act wherein you go down into the water and you come up out of the water. In fact, the the verb baptizo in Greek means to submerge. It was used to describe ships that would sink. It's a physical act. It's a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Jews practice this. They would go down into the Jordan River or down into a mikvah, into a bath. There were dozens of those baths around Jerusalem. They would go down into the water and it would symbolize that they were being cleansed from their sin. Did the water actually cleanse them? No. In their system, it was the sacrificial system that cleansed them, but the water symbolized their willingness to be cleansed by God and they would come up out of that cleansed. It was a symbol of a spiritual reality. In our faith, we submerge people. Why? Because it's a symbol of dying with Christ to sin and death. That penalty is no longer on us. It was buried with Jesus Christ, and now we are raised up to new life. It's a symbol of the inner spiritual reality. I'm wearing another symbol right now. It's my wedding ring. As you pass by me and you look down, you see that ring on my finger, you say to yourself, ah, he's married, because in our culture that means married. He's married. It's a symbol, the fact that I belong to another. This is not marriage. This is a symbol of marriage. If I were to take it off, I would still be married, right? It's just a symbol of the reality. And I suppose that someone could buy a ring and put it on their own finger and not be married. In fact, uh, I knew a, a, a gal who did this one time. I knew her and her boyfriend, and he said, yeah, she really wants to be married, but I told her I'm not going to marry her. She said, but I really want people to think we're married. He said, go buy yourself a ring, and so she did. <laughs> Ouch. Was she married? No. She was not married. They're not even dating anymore. Surprise, surprise, right? It's just a symbol. Could you fake the symbol? I suppose, right? You take the symbol off and people not see it? Well, sure. What's important? The reality behind the symbol. The reality is the moment that you believe you are identified with Jesus Christ, okay? You are spiritually baptized into the body of Christ. God's spirit takes you and puts you into Christ. And God's spirit comes in and dwells you. And now, you are one with Christ. That's the reality. Peter says, you know, that's just the natural, normal expression. You have turned away from rejection of Jesus. You have turned toward faith in Jesus. You accept him. Let's go show that publicly. In fact, these worshipers on the day of Pentecost had already gone up to the temple. They had gone up the steps, the southern steps. They had passed through the area where there are dozens of baths. There are, even recently, they've uncovered some very large 
baths, mikvahs, cleansing baths, because there were thousands of worshipers on these festival days, and they had to let thousands of people go through the cleansing before they could go up the steps and into the temple. Peter preaches his sermon. He says, all right, well, you've already been cleansed. You identified with the law that you are sinners. Now you believe that Jesus is your Messiah for you. Let's go back down and proclaim it. And that's, that's what they did, literally, right then. Because in the early church, baptism was immediate. When a person believed, they were baptized. It wasn't a long, drawn-out process. It was believe and be baptized. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch, he's in his chariot cruising along, he's reading the book of Isaiah. Philip jumps up with him and explains Isaiah 53. That Messiah, that suffering servant who's crucified, dies in, in Isaiah that Isaiah's talking about, that's Jesus. It just happened. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, whoa, stop the chariot. Got any water around here? They find a stream and he's baptized just like that. And then Philip's gone. Because that's how baptism happened. It happened immediately. So is baptism required for eternal life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Baptism is not required to receive forgiveness of sins, the gift of the spirit, or eternal life. In fact, what we will study in chapter 10 is that Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he proclaims the gospel and halfway through his message, before he gets to the good part and puts his best arguments down, God's spirit falls upon this Roman household and they begin to speak in tongues, which is a symbol of the fact that their sins have been forgiven and they've received the gift of the spirit. Peter doesn't lay hands on them first because they're Gentiles and he doesn't want to touch them, Right? Peter doesn't pray for them. Peter doesn't baptize them. Why? To prove that the gift of eternal life is a free gift. To prove it to Jews who are resistant to take it to Gentiles that it is an absolutely free gift available to all. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to clean up your act. You just believe in Jesus. Right? And so for Peter, this whole package in this first sermon, this whole package goes together. You turn away from rejection of Jesus. And instead, you turn toward Jesus and you believe and you receive the forgiveness of your sins. The debt is removed. The gift of the Spirit and the way that you show that as you go and you publicly align yourself with Jesus Christ through baptism. It's just all part of that initial understanding. It all goes together. So years later, Peter would write in his first letter, chapter 3, He'd say, correspondingly, baptism now saves you. Correspondingly to what? Well, to Noah getting into the ark, passing through the water, and not being destroyed by that water. Symbol of judgment. So Noah got into the boat, and Noah and his family were saved. Why? Because they believed. That was a symbol of being in Christ and being saved from the destruction of sin. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And then he pauses... And he says, well, unless you misunderstand, I'm not talking about water, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through Jesus Christ. He said, that's the reality. The water's just a symbol. The ark was just a symbol. The water was that symbol of judgment. Getting into the ark is a symbol of Jesus Christ passing safely through. This water, it's just a symbol of having your, your sins cleansed and removed and being identified with Jesus Christ. What saves you is you cry out and say, God, cleanse my conscience. God, forgive my sins. That's the truth. That's the reality. And men and women, we should never, ever, ever do anything that would confuse the gospel 
It's an absolutely and utterly free gift of God. So, how do we apply this? Okay. In other words, just like the people in Peter's day, okay, now what, Peter? What, what should we do? First, believe in Jesus Christ. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, today is a great moment for you. And God's Spirit is calling out to you, and he's saying, just believe. You don't have to perform any outward rituals. You don't have to clean up your act first. You just have to come. It's a free gift. Let me encourage you, right where you're sitting, just cry out to God. Say, God, save me. Rescue me from my sin. I'm changing my mind about who Jesus is and recognizing he alone can save. For those of you who have already made that decision, I reminded you last week, I want to remind you again, every week I will present the gospel. So every week, there's going to be a point in time where I present the gospel and I I make an invitation for people to believe. When I do that, if you've already made that decision, don't check out. Okay, don't check out on me. When When I start diving into the gospel, and you'll know it, man, here we go. We're going to the gospel again. When I do that, you start to pray. You pray for the people around you because there always are folks who come on a Sunday morning who don't know Jesus yet. It just hasn't, just hasn't clicked. So pray for the people here around you. Pray for your friends who don't know Jesus. Pray for your family members who, who, who don't know Jesus. In other words, join in the work that we are doing through the word and the work that the Spirit is doing to pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ. Remember, there is nothing that we can do to cause this miracle to occur. It's only the Spirit of God, and yet God's Spirit invites us to join in and participate. How? Pray. Right? So when I start on the gospel, you start praying. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to be conspicuous. Just pray. Just pray, God. Do a miracle. Okay? First application, believe. Second, be baptized in the name of Jesus. If you have never been baptized as a believer, let me encourage you to do so. Peter commanded these people to do it because Jesus commanded people to do it. Because he said it's important to publicly stand up and participate in the symbol that says, I belong to Jesus Christ. Right? If you were baptized as an infant, you know, that's, that's wonderful. Um, that's a, that's a, a great experience for you and for your family. But it wasn't when you consciously had made a choice to believe in Jesus Christ. Right? And that's what the New Testament commands. Believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized. And so that's not to say anything negative about what your family experienced and what your family wanted to communicate in your baptism as a child or as an infant that you, you, you didn't understand at that point in time. But it is to say, baptism doesn't save you, right? Baptism doesn't save you. You're saved by God and his grace through faith. And the response of a believer naturally is, I want to proclaim that to the world. And so it's important for every single one of us to stand up and say, I belong to Jesus. Now, I'm going to have some folks up here in the front afterwards. If you'd like to ask some questions about getting baptized, or maybe God's Spirit's moving in your heart and you want to believe for the first time, you want just some some help thinking through what that looks like. Again, folks will be up here to pray with you and talk with you afterwards. Let me give you a third application. Bear witness to the name of Jesus Christ. That really is the emphasis of the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth— God gave his spirit so that we would have courage and boldness to say, you can be saved through Jesus and through Jesus alone. Faith alone and Christ alone. Proclaim it. And don't be bashful. Don't be afraid because that is the one message that our world needs to hear. And so every week, man, as we're going through the book of Acts, we need to hammer on this point. 
Church, that's why we are here. And what we're trusting is the power of God's spirit to move in our community and on our campus to change lives. And we get the privilege of participating. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you change people. I thank you, Father, that you change us. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who have the courage to listen to the voice of your spirit and obey. And I pray, Father, for any here this morning, maybe are are just beginning to understand the gospel for the first time, I pray that your spirit would make it clear and they would believe. Father, I ask you now to empower us as we go out to share the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, and to share it clearly and freely. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We will see you next week.